so those of you who have been coming lately, I'm going through the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, which is the source of the practice we do here at our center. And I'm going through it, uh, talking about the different elements of this text, uh, partly to give people the, uh, kind of the background for the practice we do, and to also put uh, our practice in a larger context of the history of this kind of practice, and to use this text also as an excuse to um, explain to you some of the wide varieties and ways of ways in which vipassana uh, practice is done, mindfulness practice is done. Uh, we have a particular one here uh, in our center, or coming out of Burma, coming out of the Mahasi tradition in Burma, which um, focused almost primarily on developing awareness uh, of phenomena of body, breath, feelings, of experience, whatever the experience was, in a non-reactive way, in a non-evaluative way, just simply seeing things as they were in and of themselves. And um, people who have gone around and studied uh, different schools of Buddhism have often likened his particular approach to to meditation, to um, the meditation practices of um, Soto Zen in Japan, uh, Zen Master Dogen. And there's a whole topic in in itself, you know, the similarities and differences between what Soto Zen might teach in their meditation, the Zen type of meditation, and what the Mahasi had to teach. But there's a lot of similarities, and they, they certainly complement each other well. And, um, but the, uh, the tradition of vipassana, mindfulness practice, um, has other forms also besides the what's taught by Mahasi. And so uh, here we're going to learn one of them today, and it has to do with the body. And um, the title that's given by the translator of this section is, um, which I don't believe is in the original text, but the English uh, tr- uh, translation says, foulness, the bodily parts. And um, so I'll just read it and you can, um, and then I'll talk about it and you can get the impact of this particular translation. So this is, this is in a section of the discourse which focuses on mindfulness of the body. And mindfulness of the body, living an embodied life, being embodied in the practice, using the body, the body is a locus of practice, has uh, been important in many different schools of Buddhism. And so much so that, uh, at least the schools I've been involved in, that um, it's inconceivable to me to have Buddhist practice without a very strong emphasis on the body as a locus of practice. And that's a little bit surprising uh, for people who read a lot of books on Buddhist philosophy or because often uh, books about Buddhism somehow you don't get the impression that the body sometimes has much role at all or place in it at all. But in fact, it's, I think it's foundational to much of Buddhist practice. And um, so it's in that section, we've gone over the section, we talks about mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of, of um, activities, staying mindfulness in ordinary activities of daily life, that we bring some presence to that. And more than just a sense of presence to our life, we, we also bring a very clear, or try to bring a clear comprehension, a clear, uh, uh, um, a fuller, uh, deeper understanding of what's going on when we do simple things like stand and walk and open doors and put on our clothes. And um, so that was the earlier sections, and now we come to this section here. And the Buddha says, <clears throat> Again, a practitioner reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, 
bounded by skin, as full of many kinds of impurity. So you spend your time being in the body, viewing the body, mindful of the body, um, mindful of, that it's full of many kinds of impurity. And one does this as follows. In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery. What's mesentery? Mesentery? The gut. The contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oils of the joints, and urine. Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends full of many sorts of grain, such as hull rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, and a man with good eyes were to open it and review it thus, this is hill rice, this is red rice, these are beans, these are peas, this is millet, this is white rice. So too, a practitioner reviews this body and repeats the same thing as being full of all these body parts um, and contemplates that it, them as being, as his body is being full of many kinds of impurity. In this way, he or she abides contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body. So um, the word that's translated as foulness or as impurity um, is uh, asoba. And... um, it might, you know, it's a little bit arguable what the best translation is into, in English. It seems that in Pali, the word soba, uh, asoba is a negative. Soba can also mean beautiful. And so asoba is the unbeautiful. So you contemplate that which is unbeautiful in the body. And all these different parts of the body uh, by these ancient people, by the Buddha or the people, other ancient times, um, they considered these parts of the body to be in some ways unbeautiful. Uh, most people um, don't put these kinds of body parts on their altar or in the pillow where they're going to sleep at night. Um, you know, whatever you might think about it, there's certain kind of limits of how you might want to, what you want to do with these things: the snot and the tears and the grease and the spittle and um, all this. So it's called the unbeautiful. The first of you here, uh, the head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin. The first five. Um, some people I've heard comment that, oh, the first five are dead things. And I don't know exactly, is, is hair considered dead? Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Here, once, yeah, no? Some people say no, some people say yes. We're, we're, no, hair is not dead? Mark? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, he's a dentist, so <laughs> teeth are dead, right? They're alive. I see. The roots are alive, but what about the part you see? Well, the hair is like bone. It's alive. It's alive. 
So you wouldn't consider that to be alive? Uh, it's kind of neutral, but <laughs> uh-huh. Great. All these, all these body parts have been reborn. <laughs> Are nails alive or dead? It depends on the part, but most of what you, know, you cut off is dead, isn't it? Anyway, I've heard people comment on this and they kind of you know, comment about how the first parts are dead. Uh, the skin being the surface, that dead skin is on the surface. You know, when we look at people's beautiful bodies, we see all this dead stuff, they say. And um, I remember when I went in Turkey, um, I got this wonderful Turkish massage and the masseuse uh, was, I don't know if he was complaining, but he was commenting about how um, Americans didn't really... Uh, rub off all that dead skin very well. You know, and so he proceeded to do that for me. <laughs> then I felt quite raw. <laughs> um, so here, there's this review of the body, systematic reviewing of different body parts. And uh, I've heard also of a teacher who gives a guided meditation of imagining um, uh, you have a zipper in the front of your body and you unzip the front and then you start taking out of your body and putting on the table in front of you, just lining it all up, um, your sinos, your bones, your kidneys, your heart, your liver, your diaphragm, uh, all these things. You just lay it all out there. So it's a way of really kind of getting a hit off it, kind of getting a sense or kind of feeling it or looking at it. And um, there are 31 parts of the body in this list. In... The forest tradition of Thai monasticism, which we're closely connected to, this particular pra- or, the, or the practice of reviewing or contemplating the 32 parts of the body is a very central practice in that tradition. Uh, for some of them, it's like the primary practice they're doing over and over again, over again, to the point of entering into absorption, entering into the jhanas. And um, but there's 31 here. And there's 32 in the modern practice. And what's been added, I don't know where it was added in, is the brain. And um, in the ancient times, they thought that the brain was um, marrow, kind of like like bone marrow. And so I guess they they didn't uh, include it because I guess it was included in some other category, maybe under bone or something. Bone marrow is here. So that was kind of a marrow. And, um, and they thought that when you, um, when, uh, you blew your nose, it was that material that's in your, that your brain ma- makes that comes out. But at some point, uh, they realized the brain was, had a little bit different function. And so they, so they added the brain to this, 30, to this list, and then you get 32 parts of the body. Um, Another way that this has been developed, this practice, is that it's uh, taken to be a, a reviewing of the body, kind of mindfulness, systematic mindfulness of the body. You go through the body and systematically mindful of it. But people drop the body parts and rather just go through a body sweep, starting at the top of their head usually. And, uh, and slowly kind of, uh, there's different ways of doing it. Sometimes you do it more on the surface of the body, just kind of like water or, or oil kind of, kind of, flowing down from the top of the head, kind of flowing down across your face and your neck and down your skin. And uh, you, you are kind of following, feeling and sensing all those sensations very systematically. 
Another way of doing it is you imagine that there's a plane, a flat plane through your body. And you slowly, this flat plane is moving very slowly maybe uh, through your body. And you're just being very aware of the sensations that appear at these different planes as you go through. So it's a kind of a, a revelation practice in that you're not trying to make anything happen, but it's just mindfulness that's directed to specific areas of your body. Just like in maybe in sitting meditation, you direct your attention to the breath and be there with your breathing. Um, this here, you're actually moving your attention through your body. And uh, this, this practice is very important in some traditions of vipassana. It's one whole form of vipassana. Um, it's um, mostly popularized in the West or in the, in the, probably in the modern world outside of uh, Burma uh, by a teacher named uh, Gwenka. And maybe some of you sat with Gwenka or heard about him. And he has a lot of centers all over the world. He has a center in, in uh, a couple, one center in California and back in Massachusetts and various places. And... Um, and they spend a ten, in 10-day retreat, they spend seven days of the retreat doing this body sweep. First, very, very slowly. You might spend an hour just going from the top of your head all the way down to your toes. And then once you get the hang of it, you do, you do it much faster. You just go through and circle through, circulate through your body until your concentration gets very, very strong. And when concentration gets very strong and it's coupled with this mindfulness, then a person begins um, uh, tuning in to that part of the physical experience which is... Um, arising and passing all the time. And, and seeing the arising and passing of phenomena is a very important aspect of vipassana in all schools. It's what they, most, all schools of vipassana have in common is the importance of seeing this, uh, the arising and passing of phenomena as, it, uh, as they occur. And um, when Gwenka does it, uh, uh, he talks a lot about this practice being a purification practice. Vipassana itself is often considered a, a purification practice because as things come into awareness, as, um, uh, as, you, as your awareness wake, awakens and becomes more thorough, and then things that you've been not attending to, not paying attention to, come into, the, into awareness. So, for example, um, you know, if you're chronically tense in your shoulders, there's a way, that, or anywhere, there's a way in which tension in your body um, seems to kind of create kind of kind of a numbness there, kind of you, you know, kind of don't notice it anymore. But then at some point as you begin awakening up those parts of the body and maybe relaxing around it, some of the deeper tension reveals itself. And I've had people, it's happened to me even, I thought this thought that, um, oh, my practice is going backwards. I'm getting, it's getting worse for me. I'm getting, boy, I was doing all this practice and now I'm tense. And it isn't that I was getting tense, but rather uh, I was, uh, I was uh, this deeper tension that was in my body was beginning to show itself as this purification process is, is moving through us, is happening. And so um, some of this holding, some of the stuff that's in our body uh, or in our psyche, it can be psychological in terms of memories or feelings or emotions, and it can be uh, physical. And um, Gwenka himself talks about these things called samskaras, that uh, places kind of knots in the body where these things are stored. And part of the practice is to loosen up these knots that are stored and things get released. So it's called a purification process. And sometimes it can be very dramatic, that purification process for people. Um, and sometimes people hardly notice it. Um, have I told you recently, this group, the, uh, my, my um, washing machine analogy? No? Um, 
So it, imagine you take um, your dirty clothes and you throw it into the washing machine and you put uh, soap in there and then it fills with water and the machine agitates it. And then um, you look into your washing machine and you see the water is all dirty. And you probably think, great, all that dirt is coming out of my clothes now and my clothes will be cleaner. And, uh, and the water drains away. And mostly, people, I don't think people complain about the dirty water. Um, so the same thing happens with meditation practice. And um, we have this stuff that we carry, these holding patterns, traces that left over, karmic residue, whatever it's left somewhere in our bodies, in our psyche. And um, the meditation can be called the, like a washing machine. You know, when you, do, when you sit down to meditate, you're going to the laundry. And uh, that's why Jack's book calls, you know, After the Ecstasy of the Laundry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, the mindfulness is the soap, the detergent. And as the detergent does its stuff on the does its stuff, it pulls out the dirt. And that dirt has to go somewhere. It goes into the water, and the water of us is consciousness, is awareness. And so things come into awareness as part of the cleansing process. The problem is when things come into awareness. A lot of us have reactions to that. Oh my God, this is terrible. How could this be happening? Or, you know, this is great. You know, I hope people are noticing how great this is. You know, it must be him, you know, God's gift to humanity. Or I shouldn't say that to my mind, I said Buddha's gift. <laughs> or something. So we have these reactions to it. But usually when the purification process, what comes out is the dirt. It's not, so, it's not good news necessarily. It's physical pain and emotional pain and memories and things like that. And so people then react and they, most of the reactions have some variety perhaps of it should, this shouldn't be here. This should not be happening to me. And this has to change. But if we realize that it's a purification process, things are, things are being cleansed out of the system into the water of consciousness so it can be passed out and drained away. It might be a lot easier to be willing to sit there and let the process take its place the cleansing process that happens. So, um, in tra- traditionally, often Vipassana is considered, even though it's a practice meant for liberation, it's also considered a purification process. And for a lot of people, uh, early period of the practice, early period can be maybe the first 30 or 40 years, <laughs> uh, there can be a, a lot, of, lot, of, lot of what goes on is purification in uh, big ways and small ways. And um, so, and, and the sweeping is one of the ways, this, you know, because you're bringing attention to areas that often you don't pay attention to. Bring, you know, if you go through systematically, we have the forehead and the eyes and the cheeks and you wear the neck and the neck muscles, you wear the shoulders and the upper rib cage and then maybe the mid rib cage and the stomach and the spine and the shoulder blades and, and um, the mesentery. I'm learning. And um, so, uh, so you go through systematically and as you bring attention to these different parts of your body, very carefully, you become more sensitive. Your ability to feel more what's there becomes stronger and stronger over time as you do it. And as you, as you become, bring greater awareness to there, anything that's lodged there, any knots, so-called knots, can reveal themselves more and more and get cleansed. Um, so that's one way this uh, 31 parts of the body 
meditation has been interpreted in the modern world as a body sweep. One of the reasons to do this body sweep is for concentration. It's, it, tends to, it tends to be a relatively concentrating practice to do uh, because you're doing something systematically. You're directing the mind very... And because your mind is moving from one thing to another, like a, you have a map to follow, sometimes it can be a lot easier for the mind to get concentrated than if you're just holding, a, the, holding the attention relatively in one place all the time, like the breath, for example, um, or something else. But here, you, because you kind of, kind of have something to do, you're busy. People, some people like to do things, and here you're doing something. And so sometimes people can get more concentrated. And one of my teachers, when I um, was on long retreat, um, I, I said once, you know, I, I think I need a little more to, to balance out what was going on here. I think I need a little bit more concentration in my mindfulness practice. And he said, oh, why don't you do this body sweep for a while to bring that concentration up to what you need to have? And I know, I know other teachers who will teach um, uh, uh, that in a, in a retreat that someone might, everyone's supposed to do some body sweep every day. It's a little bit as part of the... But so body sweeping is you know, part of the tradition and it, it comes from this one here. Most, most people don't do or even know about this, that it's, this is a, a, a reflection on the impurity of the body or the unbeautiful, the non-unbeautiful aspects of the body. Um, and this is you know, a relatively unpopular, I think, idea. And certainly there's a lot of reactions uh, in the West when people this comes up, and it's kind of proof that Buddhism is kind of anti, it's world-negating, or you know, it's Buddhism kind of a downer kind of religion, and focuses on you know, the foulness, impurity, it's kind of stuck on that, and it's dualistic because it looks at the impurity, and that means it's pure, and so we should be non-dualistic about things and just see things as they are, and various things like that. There's a lot of reactions to this kind of piece. Um, I've never done this practice. So I'm not, I don't have much experience to tell you about how to do it. None of my teachers ever taught me to do this practice. I just know that it's in the tradition here in the text. Um, my understanding of one of the traditional reasons why this practice was done was as a antidote to excessive attachment to the body. And that seems to be an occasional human trait. <laughs> and uh, on those occasional times when that happens, and a person somehow can't get free from that attachment to the body, then part of the bag of tricks that you might use when you're really feeling that this is too much, I just, you know, you're suffering too much because of this attachment to the body, is to spend some time reflecting on the, these unbeautiful parts of the body. And then it's said that if you do that, uh, you kind of release your hold, your fascination with your body, kind of, in some ways. And um, so, for example, uh, sometimes this meditation is given when you're excessively attached in some way uh, to um, in forms of like, sexual lust in someone else's body. And then you don't tell them you're doing this, of course, but... You kind of, you know, you can buy teenagers, but you can buy these little 3D glasses, or what is it called, X-ray glasses. You know, they're supposed to be so, so you know, exciting, and you can go to, the, you know, go around and look at people through their clothes. Well, Buddhists do this, and uh, with their imagination, what they do is they kind of use this kind of imagination, kind of X-ray view, and they, you go around and take this beautiful kind of object of your lust, and uh, you imagine all these different body parts in there, various ways, and it's said that's supposed to help you, and uh, not be so consumed by 
you know, kind of balances out the beauty that you see in the, you know, little bit. Um, or excessive attachment to your own body in some way. Um, and maybe this is, you know, not so relevant for people here in America. But it's something that the Asian teachers talk a lot about. And then you do this practice up to the point of being able to abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is that beautiful line in this uh, discourse that reappears over and over again, kind of like the refrain. Kind of the part of the aim of doing these mindfulness practices is that they're skillful ways, they're tools, they're aids to finding that way to abide in the world independent with the heart or the mind, the awareness, independent of what is known, independent of, um, of, um, of what it knows. Um, so there's, often our minds are like Velcro. We're going to stick to things. Or, and, um, and not clinging to anything in the world. And you find in the early Buddhist tradition a lot of emphasis on developing this independent mind, an independent heart, this presence which is independent of what you're present for, not clinging to the world. And um, it's almost, I don't know if it's a paradox, but uh, what seems to happen is that as the mind becomes more luminously independent, clear, and less caught by things, uh, there's also a greater sense of intimacy, greater sense of sensitivity to the world at the same time. And because of that heightened sensitivity to the world around us, while the mind is also more independent, people often talk about Buddhist practice being um, discovering, the feeling, sensing, or, or kind of intuiting the interconnected, some as, the interconnected aspect of the world, how we're interconnected to other things, or how everything's interconnected in some way. Um, the teaching of interconnectedness is very popular here in the West. And there's some Dharma books where almost every page the teacher is talking about um, almost as if it's the highest goal of Buddhist practice is, is to realize our interconnectedness. And I, th- I suspect this has a lot to do as an antidote to the, West, the suffering in the West of American individualism, the kind of loneliness that that puts us kind of in, apart from everything. In Asia, um, in some countries in Asia at least, uh, being interconnected um, is not really a goal because people feel so interconnected already that you know it's kind of a burden. They're, they're looking how to, they're more emphasizing how to become independent from that. So, for example, in some countries, uh, there's a tremendously strong social structure that people live under, and uh, that social structure, they, um, um, you know, people are tied to it and oppressed by it or feel like you know. And so part of becoming a monastic in that tradition, becoming a monk or a nun, is really is one of the ways to step outside of the social structure and find your independence from it and not be burdened by it. Here in the West, um, uh, the issue of social structure, in America at least, of a social structure isn't, such, isn't as strong as it is in some countries in Asia. It's very easy here in America to drop out and drop back in and drop out again and drop back in and you know, people flow much more in America. You can go off and become a, you know, a dropout or a hippie or homeless or do all kinds of things. You could be a monk or a nun. And then you could decide not to do it for a while and come back and get a job or do something. 
And this is, you know, kind of unheard of in countries like in Japan. It's, if you leave the social structure in Japan, it's very hard to come back into, into it again. Um, so, um, interdependence, interconnectedness, independence, uh, the two are kind of maybe, maybe needed. You need to have both. If you focus too much on interconnectedness without the independence, then it can be... Um, lend itself to kind of sentimentality, perhaps. And if you focus too much on the independence without the sense of interconnectedness, perhaps it can lend itself to kind of aloofness. So, um, the 32 parts of the body. So, what do you think? So, what are your thoughts? What are your questions, your reactions? having spent an evening contemplating your impurity. Yes? I was traveling in uh, Thailand and actually was lost in uh, Chiang Mai uh, looking for something and I came upon a monastery and so I wasn't lost anymore. But I, um, I was talking to a monk there and talking about their practice and what they do. Uh, and he was talking about that they have I think it was 24 points in their body that they go through each location and scan and go through the 22 point, 24 points and then start again. And that's the way that they use uh, body awareness and concentration. Have you heard of it? I haven't heard, I haven't heard of that. But there are many different fi- forms of Buddhist meditation in Southeast Asia and many different ways that mindfulness is practiced. Some of them are very systematic and very particular as a ways of developing sufficient concentration and mindfulness to begin to get into this world of, uh, this choiceless world of, you know, rising and passing of phenomena. One of the ones that I think is uh, most peculiar, which, um, which seems most unmeditative in the way we think of meditation, is um, uh, a teacher in, in um, Thailand who taught, uh, his meditation practice was doing this. but very slowly with your arm and, and paying very careful attention to the sensations in your arm when you're doing this movement. You know, and it's just, it's just movement, it's just sensation, you know, kind of rhythmic sensation, very much like the way the breath is rhythmic in the body. And uh, They would say there's no difference, it's just this is a very compelling, especially after you do it for an hour or six hours, it's very compelling. And um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of kind of unusual ways of doing vipassana. Um, and 24 parts going around, I can well imagine that that's a particular way of doing it. it. Because it's systematic, again, it lends itself, for some people, where it's easier to get concentrated because you're doing something. Um, in the Mahasi tradition of ours, uh, there is something that's a little bit uh, similar to that. And that is, um, uh, there's, a tremend- there's a lot of emphasis on mindfulness of breathing in the Mahasi approach. And then if you're staying with the breath and there's a gap, at the end of the, between the out-breath, say, and the in-breath, um, if, the, if you're trying to stay in, uh, stay in touch with the breath, and the breath's not there for a little while, then the mind's idle. And an idle my, mind will get in trouble. <laughs> so you want to uh, keep the mind engaged, concentrated on something. So um, then we do the, what's called the touch points. And that is you find some parts of your body that's touching something, there's physical contact the knees touching the ground or the feet or the hands touching or the lips touching. And in that gap before the in-breath comes back, you just would go 
to a number of these touch points. If it's a long gap, you can go to two or three or four. If it's a short gap, you just go to one. So there's a kind of moving to different points that are kind of pre-selected that way. Um, there's a lot of different ways of doing this practice of mindfulness. So, part of, and, and thank you for doing it because one of the things I want to get across as I go through this book is to somehow uh, let you know that there's a, many ways of doing this. That Vipassana or insight practice is not just one thing, but it's a whole school or a whole collection of different expressions. Yes? I wonder if there's any place where the opposite occurs, where uh, there's the wonder about, um, I was going to say creation, but I won't say creation, um, the wonder about things and the amazement of the beauty of things, not necessarily the body, but of other things in Buddhism. Um, it's said that um, the, the, um, the culmination of loving-kindness practice is, uh, is um, absorption in the beautiful, in what's beautiful. So that's one place. Um, generally, in early Buddhism, in Indian Buddhism, there is um, it, um, as a, as a kind of broad generalization. Um, in the teachings of the Buddha, early Buddhism, tends to be... Um, um, The focus tends to be on what, how, what we're, the point of experience, how we're experiencing things, kind of subjectively in a sense, and not so interested in the nature of what is being experienced outside of us. So, for example, uh, the nature of the beautiful sunset or the beautiful creation of the world, uh, that's kind of considered besides the point to the spiritual practice that the Buddha was teaching. It turns out that some of the earliest, maybe the earliest nature poetry that humans have written was uh, the nature poetry of the early Buddhists. And you find the Buddha sometimes extolling the beauty of some place and being, talking about the light of the beauty of this place and that place. So it's, there's not kind of a negation of beauty and appreciation of it, but it, it's kind of like, that's kind of like on the side. It's not really central to, the, um, to what's happening. The nature itself, you know, wider nature, like we understand nature, you know, forests and trees and all that, have very little role uh, in the immediacy of the mindfulness and the meditation practice of early Buddhism. In later Buddhism, there's often uh, um, uh, people's place in reality in, in the world becomes a very important part of, um, of the expression of the religiosity, their spirituality. So, for example, in, when Buddhism came to China, it's kind of emerged or was very much influenced by Taoism, for example, where some being in harmony with nature with a Tao was very important. And there, so there, there developed more sense of kind of oneness with nature as being or a much more important part of the spiritual expression. Again, early Buddhism tended not to make any statements about who we are in relationship to nature or to the cosmos. The Buddha specifically said things like, um, you're slightly, this is, uh, oh, I don't have to make it up. Well, I'll just paraphrase then, after all. Um, any kind of statement, any kind of view, where you posit something like, um, 
I'm one with nature. I'm separate from nature. Um, um, I am nature. Uh, I'm, I'm in nature. I'm apart from nature. Um, I delight in nature. Um, nature is me. Um, and an extension of this is think, the kind of idea is that I'm one with nature. I'm not one with nature. I'm two with nature. You know, every possible kind of permutation like that, the Buddha says, is an inappropriate way of understanding what is happening in the present. Because there's an overlay of concepts of various kinds. And the strongest one is the concept of I. And the Buddha, over and over again, was saying, for the, purpose, for the purposes of the kind of liberation that he was pointing to, you're much better off, or it's essential, not to posit or not to conceive of a self in relationship to anything, in any kind of way. So you actually want to put aside completely the ways in which we conceive a self in the way we understand what's going on. So that's you know kind of deep philosophy or deep deep part of the practice. I don't know if that made sense in just a few moments of saying it. So nature doesn't play big. So the short answer is um, nature doesn't play so an important role in, 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 the, in the depth of spiritual tradition. But on the sides of it, there's always nature poetry and all this appreciation of it. Um, uh, there are some Western Western uh, scholars and, and religious people who talk about uh, the sacred or the re- religion. One of the central aspects of religion is a kind of awe in face of the sacred, awe in face of creation, and um, and that kind of notion seems uh, fairly pretty much absent in the early tradition, as far as I can tell. Does that kind of does that answer your question? Yes. That's I don't know if it was always true, but when we were down at Metta Forest Monastery, each morning one of the chants was to go through all the parts of the body. Say each one slowly, one, and then the monks would say it in Pali, one, nails, and whatever the word was, one by one by one. So right here in California, there's a Theravada monastery where every morning, as part of their chanting, they they go through very carefully and systematically, slowly chanting each of these different body parts. They do the brain too. The brain too. Yes. I I found um, myself bringing up kind of like a reactive uh, to to the foul parts of the body. It it almost reminds me of the Christian tradition where you are taught to disregard your body or look at it as something as something bad, and so you're transcending the body. So I'm having a little bit of a hard time looking at this in a constructive way because I also feel if one can, or in another way, you, you can also develop aversion to your body yeah, when yeah. you're thinking about it. Like you don't want to be in your body. Yeah, great. I'm very glad you said, said all, the, all you said, including your reaction. I think a lot of people have reactions, so it's interesting to talk about it. Uh, she said uh, she has a reaction to it because it seems a little bit uh, like a certain Christian, I guess, Christian background that she knows about where there's a kind of negation of the body, body's terrible, you want to transcend the body. And it seems like this kind of practice could lead to kind of aversion of the body or aversion, of the wor- a, a, a aversion to the world in some way. 
And I think that uh, that's uh, true. I think that's in, in misunderstood. It can be uh, world negating or body negating or kind of seeing the body as being foul or bad and something to get away from. And, um, you know, I think it's best to uh, see all religions. So this is a generalization. This is Gill kind of pontificating here. So you don't, don't take me too seriously. But um, I think it's best to see all religions as um, being um, a, like a big, each religion being a big collection of different religions within it or different views or different kind of takes on things. So like say Buddhism this way or Christianity this way. And you find, once you start looking at the, all, the, you know, all the sub-religions within a particular religion, all these religions are so similar. <laughs> you know, you know so, so, what, so, so you do find Buddhists in the Theravada tradition, in the Mahayana tradition, in the Zen tradition even, who have world-negating and body-negating kind of approaches to their spirituality. And, you know, I've encountered some of these people and just, you know, it feels kind of off to me. Just seems a little bit negative and aversive against the spirit of it. Um, so this can lend itself to that and be supportive, of, be supportive of that. Or if a person has a personality that way already, they read this something like this, and that just fuels that kind of tendency already. But I don't think that was what it was meant to be. Um, uh, oh, there's a story. I didn't realize it's getting late, but um, uh, a story I don't like to tell because I don't like the story, and it, you know. <laughs> But um, but there's a story of monks in time of the Buddha misunderstanding the Buddha's in this instruction. So the Buddha was teaching this practice about the foulness of the body, and some monks went out and committed suicide. I don't know if this is a true story, but you know this is what comes down. And so the Buddha had to call his monks together and say, "Hey, wait, you guys misunderstood. <laughs> this is not we know what I was teaching." And um, so, you know, even in his time, people had reactions that, you know, misunderstood it in certain ways. Um, the way, the way that you, it's usually taught by people that I, you know, people I respect or people say, teach us to teach in ways that are meaningful for me is the way I told to you is that this is an antidote practice to a certain kind of uh, attachment or hindrance that some people have. And if a person's really stuck in this hindrance, of, of uh, sensuality, for example, this is really helpful. This can be a really helpful way of freeing a person if, it, if nothing else will free you. The, and there's a, Buddhism has a whole um, um, a tool bag full of antidotes to help with particular uh, things. Um, in the practice, in the practice traditions I studied in, in the Mahasi tradition and in the Zen tradition, they did. I was a little bit. The idea of antidotes was kind of considered a little bit besides the point. And you just want to kind of just cultivate just kind of direct seeing or direct presence and just being with things as they actually are. But there is a whole tradition of Buddhism that has these arsenal of antidotal practices they would use. And so, so if you understand it as an antidote, then once, once the medicine has done its trick, then you're supposed to forget the medicine. So this is medicine, homeopathic medicine or something. You do this little thing. And... Um, 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 and I believe that as someone who's dedicated to uh, meditation practice in this early tradition uh, would not be able to sustain a negative view of their body in this kind of way uh, exactly because what comes with a deepening of meditation practice is the upwelling of a lot of wonderful, holistic, integrated feelings of the body. Um, and this tremendous amount of pleasure 
can move course through the body. And the Buddha gives beautiful descriptions of, you know, the, you feel like you're sitting in the body and it feels like the body is this... Remember, this is a very hot climate in India, so you feel like the, in the body there's this cool... The body's a cool, uh, refreshing pool. And coming out of the depths of that pool is more cool and very refreshingly cool uh, water that kind of comes up from some under, underwater spring and, and moves up and suffuses the whole pond with its refreshment. So in the same way with deep meditation, there's kind of this refreshing sense of joy or vitality or clarity can come up and kind of move through your whole body. And you're not going to sit there having this downer kind of view of your body when you're body is filled with joy and delight. And that's really, that, that's talked about a lot in these, these discourses, is that presence of joy in the body and things like that. And so I think that uh, meditation and practice itself um, is an antidote to getting stuck, if someone does, in this kind of reflection of the foulness of the body. Does that make sense? Yes, last one. Right, right. Right. Uh, uh, it seems that from this particular practice here in this very important text, uh, people have adapted it. Uh, I don't know when it was adapted, but it was adapted to become what's no, now known as a body sweep or the body scan. And there's no attempt to evaluate uh, what a person is experience, experiencing, and no attempt to use it as an antidote. It's just the systematic awareness of different parts of the body, different sections of the body, like you described. And uh, it's used by in John Kabat-Zinn in his mindfulness-based stress reduction that's taught. And it's very popular. It's taught to other, other places too. And it's a very, very powerful, very wonderful practice to do. And I suspect that, Mark, you teach it. It's part of what you do yeah. when you do uh, at Stanford. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's very helpful. And, and you don't do that in the context of the foulness of the body. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I... Um, I think people who teach this kind of stuff are coming out of uh, John Kabat-Zinn's program, like Mark. I'm, I suspect that uh, there's a great appreciation of the wisdom and value of the body and that goes as part of that practice, right? So I said that would be the last one. So I'll stay behind if there's more questions. And um, so many thanks. See you next week.